Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lauren Nicola, Chief Executive Officer of Triad Radiology Associates in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Chair of Radiology at Forsyth Medical Center, and Chief Medical Officer of Strategic Radiology's Patient Safety Organization. An academic pediatric radiologist during her first two and a half years out of training, Dr. Nicola shifted to private practice eight years ago, initiating a remarkable ascent to the top leadership post in her 50 radiologist practice and a burgeoning portfolio of leadership responsibilities, both locally and nationally. Within the American College of Radiology, she serves on the Board of Chancellors as the Chair of the Commission on Ultrasound, and within the Economics Commission, she chairs the MACRA and the Reimbursement Committees, and is the advisor to the RUC, the AMA Relative Value Scale Update Committee. Through it all, she and her radiologist husband Greg are raising five daughters and beta fish with supernatural lifespans. Before beginning my conversation with Dr. Nicola, I want to invite you to join us for the 2023 Radiology Leadership Institute Summit, September 29th to October 1st, at a new venue, the Boston Seaport Hotel, located just minutes from Logan Airport on the historic waterfront. Although the venue has changed, this year's program will deliver the same compelling content and networking opportunities you've come to expect from the RLI Summit. Register at acr.org slash RLI Summit by April 15th and save up to $400. Lauren, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here. So... Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born and raised? I was born in a small town called Reedsville, North Carolina. It was a tobacco town, kind of a lower middle class area. My parents didn't actually go to college. My dad was in the restaurant business. I grew up with my identical twin sister. It was just the two of us. It's kind of all we knew. It's that small town world. I remember my dad making us work in the restaurants as, as waitresses from like age nine. And his, his plan was, this is what you don't want to do when you grow up. This is hard work. Find something else to do with your life. Wow. Uh, Reedsville. So just how many people were in that town? How small was it? 15,000. I see. Got it. And you mentioned your dad was in the restaurant business. What kind of restaurant was it that T was operating? He and his family owned uh, two fast food type restaurants in that small town. Actually, they still exist and are kind of a known entity and they're kind of famous in that area. They do burgers and fries at one of them and chicken and biscuits at the other one. So good, good Southern fare. Good Southern food, no doubt. I, I can't help but notice that uh, coming from small town in North Carolina, you're not really carrying a North Carolinian <laughs> accent. Uh, did you used to have one? <laughs> you know, um, my mom, when we were little, made my sister and I watch British cartoons. When, so she thought we would grow up with a British accent. She thought that would make us sound more educated. <laughs> so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. My family, extended family, certainly has a, a Southern draw. But for whatever reason, I've managed to avoid that <laughs> for most of my life. There's certain words the kids the kids know tiger and spider that that I sound sometimes they'll make fun of me when I when I mispronounce this. And so, uh, how about your mom? Uh, did she uh, work outside the house? 
She did. She um, worked at the uh, post office, the U.S. Postal System, for many years. Uh, she actually did the third shift there. So she would work all night so that she'd be available to you know, take us to school events and be there for our tennis matches and things like that. So, And she really sacrificed a lot for her family. I've done some overnight shifts as a radiologist. It's tough. I could imagine that long term. And it was tough on her, but she was there as much as she could be for us and really put her family first and was a great example for all of us. That's spectacular. And, and so you mentioned that uh, early on you were working in the restaurant. What, what are some of your recollections of what it was like as a nine-year-old waiting <laughs> tables? <laughs> well, we did some table cleaning. They would put us behind the uh, the counter and have us do little little tasks. And I remember my, my biggest fear was when someone ordered an ice cream cone from the soft serve machine because uh, you know, I love ice cream. So I wanted to please the customers. I wanted to give them this nice, big, tall ice cream cone, but it's a little hard to balance that on the cone. So I would get this, you know, break out into a sweat. There'd be a lot of anxiety. My sister and I would fight over who had to make the ice cream cones. We'd like draw us a short straw and reluctantly go over to the machine and do our very best to have this super topoly uh, cone of soft serve. So I still have a little bit of PTSD whenever a uh, soft serve ice cream is comes, comes to the table. You and your sister, are you identical twins? We are. We're identical twins. Wow. And uh, so you must be very close to her. <laughs> we're very close. Um, we talk or text uh, multiple times throughout the day. It was a day not too long ago. She sent me a picture of her and she was wearing the exact same thing I was wearing, which was kind of <laughs> ironic. We certainly didn't plan it. I was just like, oh my gosh, I have that shirt and <laughs> I have it on today. So there's some sort of supernatural twin connection that I believe really does exist. That's fantastic. Is she in North Carolina also? You know, she is, uh, she's in medicine. She is, uh, does internal medicine. She actually just moved today. They're on the road today to the University of Michigan. So she had been in Charlotte, but she took a job as the uh, chief of hospital medicine at University of Michigan. So they're en route as we speak to move to Ann Arbor. Wow. All right. And good luck to her with that new opportunity. Yeah. I'm sure it's I told exciting. Her I would visit in the summer, but the winters were going to be far away from Michigan. Were you, you know, with the restaurant taking a lot of attention and your mom being on the third shift, did you guys come together for uh, dinners when you were growing up or was it, you know, a lot of uh, different schedules blending and not really sitting down together? A mix of both. Uh, It was a lot of chaos. I mean, just like modern families, we had sports after school and activities and the parent, two working parents. Sometimes we would come together. Sometimes we would grab whatever we could get. There were some cereal dinners. There were some more formal family dinners, a mix of a little bit of everything. When was college in the plan? Uh, was that something that your parents yeah. introduced very early? Yeah, um, I think that they, you know, my sister and I are, are, did well in school from an early age. And, and my parents, my, my mom tells this story of how when we were in kindergarten, she got a call from uh, my kindergarten teacher. She uh, was like third day of school. And my mom was all worried that I had done something wrong. <laughs> she was like, oh, no, it's the third day of school. Is she in trouble already? And the, the teacher said, no, she just, you know, th- there was a newspaper times or something on my on my desk and and she picked it up and started reading it my mom was all apologetic I can't believe she took that off your desk how dare she and the teacher was like no no we don't really expect you know kidders to be able to read the paper at this age and so it tur- turned out that she she actually thought we were being naughty but uh, the teacher was giving us compliments so we were you know, kind of advanced in school in and in a small school system so sort of a big fish in a little pond kind of thing so to our school system's credit they always found advanced classes and ways to keep us challenged so I think that they my parents knew we would go to college they were pretty young when they had us, so they just didn't know anything else. So they supported us the best that we could, and college was pretty much always in the stars for us. 
Yeah, great. And while in high school, uh, what sorts of extracurricular activities did you pursue? I played tennis. Uh, that was probably my biggest uh, activity. We were pretty good high school tennis players and played competitively for the, for the team and in uh, league play outside of school. Also did some very short stints on the swim team and the track team, took dance classes, did a little bit of everything. Any leadership roles early on in high school? Yeah, I think I was like the class vice president or something one year. I did some student council things, some leadership roles in various clubs and things like that. So, Did you remember what motivated you to pursue those? You know, from a young age, I always just really loved the aspect of, of teams. Just working with teams is so satisfying, even from, from a kid. So yeah, it wasn't necessarily the being the leader part that appealed to me, but you know, working with the other kids at that time, later adults, um, in that team-based atmosphere has always been something that I've been drawn to. And so after high school, you went straight to college? Mm-hmm. And where, where did you go? Uh, I went to Wake Forest for undergrad. And what did you study there? I was an economics major at Wake. Um, I knew I was interested in medicine, but I also knew I'd get tons of science classes as part of the pre-med uh, workup. I also had an interest in, in economics and the business side of things. So figured it would be a good a good time to take those classes where I could and expand my horizons. So I was an economics major, and then I was a biology and history minor. So kind of got a broad span of things in college. That is broad. And you mentioned that you knew from the start that medicine was what you wanted to do? I knew I was interested in science and medicine. I wasn't completely committed to it at the very beginning of college, kind of bounced around with various ideas. It was always something that I was considering highly, and then probably mid-college or so, I was sure that I was going to go. But you knew at that point you were headed to medicine, but you were interested in economics and, you know, sort of heading into your decision to major in economics, you probably had some expectations of what it would be like. Having completed your education in economics, were your preliminary ideas realized or did you have any epiphanies along the way that about economics specifically? I think you're giving me too much credit for forward thought as a uh, 19-year-old. But um, yeah, I think at the time I was just interested in the concepts and I loved learning. I really liked learning about the economic side of things. Uh, it was just something that I found intriguing and interesting. So I wasn't at that point really putting together the pieces of how that would fall into play. It was just something that I had a passion for. Sure. And so after graduating with your bachelor's degree, did you go straight to medical school? I did. Okay. And where did you go to medical school? I went to Duke for medical school. You're stopping girls. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, what led you to choose to move from the triad to the triangle? I grew up a diehard Duke basketball fan, like completely uh, obsessively uh, followed all the, all the college basketball shenanigans. Um, so I just was convinced I was going to go to Duke for undergrad, actually. It just was my only, only option as a child. I loved it that much. When it came time to apply for undergrad, I, I applied to Duke. And then I was like, you know, Wake Forest is close. Why don't I just uh, throw in my name in the hat and ended up going to visit for a weekend and absolutely loved Wake Forest campus and the feel of the the community. So I did go to Wake for undergrad, but um, I think part of me knew that I wanted to go to Duke at some point in my journey. So after undergrad, it seemed the right time to make the transition to the triangle. Excellent. Did you uh, get to go to many games during your years at Duke? 
I, d- I went to a couple of games. As you know, it's not super easy to get into those games. <laughs> so it requires camping out in tents for days and days. So as a, a medical student, it's not always conducive to your rotation schedule or your study schedule, but um, we made it happen a couple of times. And so um, while at Duke, did you pursue any leadership roles there as a medical student? Yeah, at Duke, um, yeah, obviously your first goal is to survive medical school, but um, I did have some leadership roles within the class. We had a couple of different organizations, uh, student-led organizations for community outreach um, and within the def- different subspecialty rotations that we did, there would be some various organizations that needed leadership that I held roles in. During your years there, did you get involved in the business side or economic side at all, or were you focused exclusively on medicine? Uh, mostly medicine. Um, I would follow health policy kind of peripherally and keep up with what was going on, but I didn't really have a lot of hands-on participation in the economics side of medicine at that point. You graduated first in your medical school class at Duke, and that is mm-hmm. quite an accomplishment. That's a very accomplished group of medical students as a whole, and to finish first is amazing. Did you have that accomplishment in mind as you went through medical school or it just sort of happened? No, it mostly just sort of happened. I think that every new rotation I was on or every new topic we covered, I just, you know, I actually enjoyed learning about it. I wanted to put my best foot forward. I found that really the secret to the clinical rotations was getting to know the, the residents and the attendings and learning as much as you could from them staying late sometimes if it had if you had to but I try to tell this to my kids that you, you in some ways you have to know how to play the game and that means showing you're interested showing that you care about what's going on and it's amazing how much more you can learn when you get that feedback one-on-one feedback from the, the people that you're working with it's a lot easier than just trying to study from a book and uh, call it done so I, and I certainly can't say that I said from the day one I'm definitely gonna do my best to graduate first but yeah I, I did well I enjoyed learning and it was actually fun and great insights into being a successful medical student. Uh, what led you to pursue radiology? I was trying to decide between radiology and ophthalmology. Um, while I was in medical school, I did sort of an internship, sort of a job with an ophthalmologist, a retina specialist. So when I was you know, not in classes, I would go work for him. Learned a ton about the field. I really enjoyed it. Um, so those were kind of my two deciding points. And then I was on the line for having to make a decision. And I went to a medical student forum at Duke and uh, one of the radiologists was there and they were asking, what do you like about your career? And I remember distinctly, she said, every morning I get up and I get so excited to go to work. I love my job. It is so much fun. It's like, you know, anybody who feels that way about their work, this is something that I really need to look into a little bit more. And I just fell in love with the problem solving aspect of radiology. I mean, other fields of medicine are like that. But for me, you're presented with this scan, this way to kind of peer into the inside of the patient, quite literally. And and in some ways, we hold all the answers for the other physicians and for the patients. So I like putting those pieces together and coming up with a a solution that's going to guide patient care and guide the treatment team. That part was appealing to me. I think I could have been happy doing some other things, but it's been a great, great career so far. It's an incredible field, no doubt. Graduating first in your class at Duke, you probably could have gone anywhere for a radiology training, but you chose to go back to Wake Forest. Why Mm -hmm. was that? For one reason, I had family in the area and some geographic reasons to want to stay close. Wake had a great residency, a lot of really outstanding faculty there. I had some connections there from having done undergrad. Uh, I just, I I love the program. I love the area. and We were happy to stay. And uh, during your residency years, uh, did you pursue any outside activities, leadership roles, anything that uh, stands out from those years? 
I guess probably the most important leadership role I assumed in residency was becoming a mom. So I had had my first daughter in in residency. So that was my uh, foray into something entirely different in in the world of leadership. That journey. Now, becoming a mom, where were you in residency when you had your first daughter? My first daughter was towards the, oh my goodness, it was in 2008. Second year, it was right before the physics exam. I remember because I was going to be on maternity leave. My daughter was going to be four weeks old when we took the big physics exam. And as a completely naive uh, person who has no children, I thought this will be perfect. I'll have all this extra time to study. I'll have this baby. I won't be at work for four weeks. It's going to be great. Turns out you actually you know, don't have that much free time <laughs> with a newborn. Um, and then you're sleep deprived and you know, all those other things. But it turned out just fine. Yeah, I had her uh, early on in residency, four weeks exactly before the physics exam. And how did uh, having a daughter while being a resident affect you as a resident? Yeah, so it, it changes a lot. I mean, your perspective, for one thing, on life changes. So yeah, I mentioned as a med student, you know, I was often the last one to leave. I was the first one there in the morning. Now, logistically, that's just harder when you have a kid, not only for responsibility reasons, but because you're kind of torn. You know, you want to be there for your daughter. You want to be there for your job. Mom guilt is totally real. So when you're not at one place, you feel like you should be at the other and vice versa. And actually, it turned out just fine. I would bring her sometimes on Saturday morning calls in her little car seat carrier. She would sit beside me. Thankfully, radiology dictating is very lulling. It's like a nice <laughs> lullaby. So she would sleep peacefully. Some of her first words were pneumothorax and uh, <laughs> the esophagus. She was a big fan of esophagus. So it, it worked out. Life is all about what you make it. Absolutely. That's great. And so after completing your residency, you pursued pediatric radiology for fellowship. What led you to PEDS? I liked uh, PEDS and uh, brass. Those were my two that I was trying to decide from at the end. Um, I really liked everything I did. I started off wanting to do neuro. And I liked the patient interaction in both of those. I could never be an internal medicine doctor or someone that you know has 24-day patient contact. But I did like the limited patient contact where you got to see the patient, discuss the problem with them, often provide some sort of resolution or at least next steps for them. And, and that was part of both MAMO and PEDS that I enjoyed. I liked not sitting in a chair all day long, getting up a little bit to go do some procedures, to do some biopsies, you could talk to people. So yeah, I found both of those rewarding and uh, was able to train in both of them for a fellowship year and uh, ended up uh, being on faculty in both of those departments at Wake for a couple of years. Having made the decision going into undergrad that you had this interest in economics and business and such, uh, during all your years of training, did you maintain any touch points to that or did you give yourself up wholly to medical education? Um, some of both. Um, like I said, I sort of I, I always followed health, health policy and regulations and um, kind of how physicians are paid and radiology reimbursement and sort of had an um, interest in that world all, all along in training. I didn't have as many places to put that into practical use other than just reading journal articles and, and you know, proposed and final rules as those go down and things like that, keep up with ACR announcements. Towards the end of fellowship and in my academic years, there were some kind of business-related things that I was interested in and, and products I thought we could improve. Some of that frustrated me in academics because it's a little bit harder. Now there's a lot of layers of things to get uh, ideas passed through and things change. So a little bit of that motivated me to change to private practice. I think it's easier now. I think a lot of academic centers have opened themselves up to more of that business-minded, um, business mindset 
Uh, but for me, that was one of the motivating factors to go to private practice. After fellowship, you joined the faculty at Wake Forest Baptist Health in breast and pediatric radiology, as you just mentioned. And you then described the rationale for um, moving beyond uh, academic practice. But what led you to pursue academic practice initially? Well, I, I really enjoyed my time at Wake. I thought the faculty were outstanding. Um, I liked the job. I liked the ability to do both breast and peds. Um, I think sometimes in academics, uh, one reason people don't choose it is because they kind of get pigeonholed into one thing. So I had the ability to do two things. Um, so that was nice. It was uh, my family was already there. So we weren't really in the position to relocate. The job market was kind of awful in 2011, 2012. Um, so, uh, and we really just needed to stay put and it was a great place to land for a couple of years. So it worked out well. And how would you say those two and a half years influenced you uh, working there in that environment? You know, I, I learned a lot of things from working in academics. The departmental um, dynamics, I think, are something you have to learn how to <laughs> how to navigate in academics. And uh, every section has their own kind of personality. So, did you try to influence change from the perspectives that you saw while you were at Wake Forest on the faculty? Yeah, I did some. Um, I. Uh, made some suggestions, you know, had, had some meetings with the, with the chair. It was interesting that time uh, period at, at that particular institution, they were going through some changes in leadership. So the longtime chair was, um, was leaving. Uh, there was an interim chair and then another chair that lasted for a couple of years. And so the, the whole thing was in flux a little bit. So it was a little bit hard to know who to go to, to, uh, to get things changed. Um, and then outside of radiology, you know, even if you had a great idea that everybody in radiology supported, you still had the hospital um, leadership and the health system leadership. And you know, honestly, that those were typically the biggest barriers there. There's so many kind of bureaucratic loopholes to get through, even for the littlest thing. You, know, you want a new trash can in your office, you have to get facilities management to approve it just because maybe it's you know, not the right kind of trash can, just for example. But um, there were times when I felt like I was kind of beating my head up against a wall trying to make change. But I don't Yeah, that's not unique to any one place or even type of practice. I think that's true across the board. And so you alluded to some of the motivations behind after two and a half years, your decision to leave Wake Forest and move really just about a mile and a half (laughs) uh, down the road to join Triad Radiology Associates in Winston-Salem. Any other sort of perspectives about the opportunity as it presented itself at Triad that led you to say, yeah, this is the right move for me now. Yeah, it was a, it was a tough decision. I mean, I, I did enjoy my time at Wake. I certainly uh, respected and enjoyed the people that I worked with. For me, I just I was really uh, energized and challenged by the thought of running a business and being an owner of a business. So adding that component to a job that I already loved in radiology was was hard to turn down. At the time, you know, the schedule worked a little bit better for my family life, and there were other reasons that you know, made it a good place to start. When I started at Triad, I wasn't even a partner. I was on an employee position because they didn't, I was obviously, it was, as I said earlier, a terrible time for for radiologists coming out. Uh, It's hard to find jobs. So they just weren't hiring uh, for a partner. So they took me on as employee. It took a little bit of a leap of faith on on my part, knowing that this is the ultimate job I want, maybe not the starting place that I want, but uh, that that I would get there. And um, I did and worked well. Yeah. Tell us a bit about Triad Radiology Associates in 2015 when you joined. What was the size of the practice and the scope of its activity? In 2015, uh, we were about 35 or so radiologists. Um, 
we covered Navant Health as our big main hospital partner. We have a couple of other smaller hospitals and outpatient imaging centers that we staff. Multi-specialty, we have for a long time had overnight coverage internally. So it's kind of a, a team of night people, probably for 20 years the practice has done it this way, which I think is pretty forward thinking uh, on their part. So you know, night hawk radiologists that are belong to TRA, but rotate through the night shift. That's been you know, really useful for us, especially in the COVID transition when we had to uh, move everybody off site. We were you know, an early adopter of remote work, I think, relative to some other practices. Let's see what else in 2015, we had executive committee, various uh, leadership positions that were open and available to all the partners. There were a couple of uh, outpatient centers that we uh, had agreed to cover that were putting a strain on the practice in 2015, just because of their location. Partners were having to drive several hours to cover them. We would hire somebody that would stay for a little while, and then they would go somewhere else, and then we'd have to backfill. So people weren't very happy about that situation. Let's see. I think that's a pretty good, pretty good yeah. picture of TRA in 2015. So, so, so coming in as an employee with the perspective of wanting to be a business owner. Firstly, I'm assuming that in your mind, it was a given you were going to make it to that point. How many other employees were there at that moment in time in the practice? That time we had probably, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15. So we had some employees and then some people that had been partners, but then they aged out and then they were employees. So I kind of put those in different categories, but 10 or 15. Total. There was an, an age at which partners had to resign from yeah. the partnership. Yes, yeah, so at sixty-seven, they have to resign from the partnership. That yeah, that was a, a, another controversial, kind of challenging uh, decision on the practice. But we ultimately decided that having a policy was better than being forced to make individual decisions. You know, these are people we've worked with for 30, 40 years. We have personal relationships with them. Trying to make a decision on when is the right time for somebody to retire is really hard when it's your friend and somebody that you've called your teammate for um, for many, many years. So we decided the, the best thing was to make that a policy. After 67, they're certainly welcome. We pay them very well. You know, they're welcome to stay on as an employee, but that's a year yearly annual renewed contract. And I think it just makes things cleaner and easier to handle. I assume it persists the same today. It does. And uh, at what point then did you make the transition from employee to partner? I had been there about a year and uh, was brought into the current CEO's office. And he said, you're doing a great job. Everybody thinks you're awesome. We'd like to transition you to the partnership track. I said, yes, please. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) That's really nice. Was there anything else asked of you at that moment in time? No, I think that, you know, know, I remember distinctly that when I interviewed for the job, the CEO at the time, I said, look, I don't take in this job as an employee. I don't really want to be an employee. And he said, I understand. It's all we have available right now. My advice to you is just make yourself indispensable and then you won't have to worry about it. So that phrase, make yourself indispensable, is, it runs through my head yeah, constantly, even to this day. I give the same advice to other people, to my kids. You know, if you're thinking about how can you make yourself indispensable, then you're probably going to be all right. So from, you know, obviously it's, it's not really a means to an end. It's how you should operate because that's what you believe is the right way to do it. But from the beginning of the job, I a hard worker. I was always there for the team. That's when I really started putting some of my economics expertise into play. So now here I am at this private practice. It was 2015. So macro had just dropped. 
just like almost everybody else in the country, the private, my private practice didn't know much about it. They, most of them had never even heard of it. So I came in with questions like, what are we doing for MIPS? How are we getting ready for these quality measures? What are we doing? They were like, wow, <laughs> somebody actually knows what we're doing. We're going to put you in charge of this. So from an early stage, I got to be involved on, on that aspect. Um, I think I earned some credibility with the practice from having those skills and expertise that at the time that nobody else really uh, had. So that was my niche at the time. And then uh, I would stop by to the administrative office and practice leaders, and I would have conversations about you know, ideas and things like that. So they knew I was interested. And I think that they uh, knew that I had the motivation to want to be involved at a higher level. What were some of the early interventions that you recall you were able to carry through vis-a-vis MIPS and MACRA? Uh, well, you know, the part of MIPS is you have to submit six quality measures and the quality measures are, in many ways, it's just like playing a game. You have to check the right boxes and get your strategy in place. A lot of it was yeah, template changes that you have to make to be sure that you can mine the reports to say that you did the quality measure example would be you know, one of the measures is you have to list the number of images and floor time to be able to document dose for fluoroscopic uh, exams. So if that's not something that your radiologists are listing in the report, then you don't do well in that measure. So a lot of it was working with our IT team and messaging to the radiologist that these are important things that we have to do. We're going to build templates for it. We're going to make it a process measure. So, I mean, a process improvement so that you don't actually have to think every time. So you click on the study and it you know, automatically populates. And then a lot of auditing and feedback and things like that to make sure that we were making, making those improvements. And then some of them are, you know, I don't want to downplay the, the actual quality improvement. Some of it was things that I think really do make a difference, making sure that we're giving solid evidence-based recommendations for follow-up, for example, for thyroid lesions and, and renal lesions, instead of just making some blanket statement, recommend follow-up, or this could be bad, using the evidence-based guidelines on what interval to and what modality to use. So we made sure that those were implemented and, and part of our reporting. Did you encounter any barriers within the group in pursuing some of these changes? You put 50 radiologists in a, in a room, there's going to be all barriers. We could decide which which kind of cake to have for after dinner if that was an option. Yeah, there, there's always barriers. Um, one thing that's unique about running a medical practice and a radiology practice is these are all super bright people with super big opinions. There's no boss or person who really outranks them. We're all partners. So, you know, one, one person's word isn't any better than another. So, and some of these things are, are pure opinion. You know, do you use a template for a report or do you use narrative type? People believe both ways very strongly sometimes. So often you have to use, in my experience, the best thing to use is an argument for patient care. The one thing we can all agree on is that we want to do the right thing for the patient. And I'll say my practice is amazing about that. So their number one goal, vision, mission statement is, is all about patient care. So if you want to make change and you can make sure that you can focus on something that everyone agrees on and prove whatever it is that you're trying to change ultimately will lead to that, then that's the, really the, where, how we've been able to move the needle on some of those more kind of minutia type things with the reporting. Any other tips that you picked up early to help to build consensus and lead diverse teams to a decision? Yeah, the, the biggest tip I think I've learned is listen. Yeah, I think people have this concept that leaders have to be the authoritative voice that you know, says this is my opinion and all my expertise. And the best leaders I've seen will sit in a room and listen to everybody's opinion and then, you know, they'll facilitate, they'll ask people that haven't had a chance to speak what their opinion is, but they wait. And then at the end, they may organize thoughts or compile thoughts, but people respond so much better when their voices are heard. Consensus, sometimes they don't even need to have that, the outcome be what their opinion was, but they need to be heard and they need to be able to express that. So creating an environment where people are comfortable doing that is, is really important to getting buy-in 
engagement. And as uh, one of the youngest members in the practice at this point, the senior partners and such, they gave you the space to create that environment? They did. And that, that again, is a testament to, I think, some of the unique, um, really incredible parts of my practice. There's always been an emphasis on having younger people at the leadership table, which I cannot uh, overestimate the importance of that. Those young people are the ones that are going to be with the practice the longest. So it makes no sense to have a boardroom full of 66-year-olds when you know the 67 is the is the end of, end of your partnership position. Um you know, those people aren't going to be making decisions with the same type of mindset that someone who's got the rest of their career and the rest of their life invested in this business. So we really try, uh, as soon as we get people who've joined the practice, we really try to plug them in immediately into various committees and leadership positions. One, it makes them more engaged and, and builds, I think, uh, more investment and loyalty to the practice from the beginning. And, and two, their ideas are the ones that those are usually where you get the innovative, out-of-the-box thinking ideas and the diverse opinions and things that you really need to keep the practice sustainable. So it's essentially part of the group's ethos to create leadership competencies at an early stage. And we try. Yeah, it's fantastic. And to what extent does the group reach out to external resources in order to augment the uh, leadership capabilities and to enhance diverse ideas coming in versus relying on internal mechanisms? So um, we've had a couple of uh, times where we've brought in some outside leadership training or consultants. A lot of that is uh, driven by the individual that we support people to go seek that. We don't have a ton of experience providing that for the practice, although I think that's a great idea. I've had a, a been uh, blessed with some opportunities through the ACR with leadership training and uh, communications training and things like that. Yeah, everybody's busy. All practices are understaffed and overworked. So um, it really is sometimes a challenge to find time for that. But I think overall, we've done a good job in supporting people that that want to expand their leadership skills and, and get that kind of training outside of work. Now, six years after joining Triad, you became its chief executive officer. Take us through that journey. How did you progress and how were you ultimately appointed to that role? I became a partner in 2017. Right away, I was put on the executive committee. I was offered a position on the executive committee, which I took. And then shortly after that, I was the chair of the executive committee and then uh, chair of the um, of outpatient imaging. So I had some leadership roles within the practice, a medical director at one of the hospitals, so uh, I kind of assumed some of those leadership roles really from, from the beginning and uh, was just lucky to have a great team to work with. We have really nice spread of people with diverse opinions that lead the rest of our committees. Uh, we have lively discussions at our EC meetings. Um, so just a phenomenal team to work with altogether. Our CEO ended up, I think he enjoyed the CEO job, but he really liked clinical medicine and he's an incredible MSK radiologist. So it was the you know, to the practice's de- detriment when he uh, took over more administrative roles. So he, he just missed clinical medicine and wanted to go back to that. Our practice does not have a certain, I know some groups like rotate the presidency or the CEO ship through every couple of years. We don't do that. Um, if someone is doing a good job and likes it, they can more or less keep the job until the, the board decides that they don't want them there anymore. But he electively decided that uh, he was going to go back into clinical, full-time clinical radiology. And at that time, yeah, he, he, uh, he specifically asked me if I would be interested. He thought I would be good for succession planning. thought about it for a little bit and said that I would. And then the practice has an election. And uh, they actually had a um, brought in a um, non-radiology, kind of a business-type person. The practice was thinking, you know, we should do our due diligence here. I know some practices are run with business-type CEOs and a physician dyad. 
situation. So uh, there was a, a candidate who uh, would have filled that role that we discussed. And in the end, the practice decided to remain 100% physician-led. So I was elected and that was in twenty summer of 2021. Fantastic. Fantastic. Congratulations. And tell us a little bit about your role as CEO. What are your primary responsibilities and how do you structure that role? So my primary responsibilities are to keep the practice afloat, which is sometimes sometimes easier said than done. Um, no, it's 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 a phenomenal job. And again, I, I'm just over the moon lucky with the, the team that I have in place that I get to work with every day. Probably my primary responsibility is maintaining relationship with our with our uh, hospital partners and our uh, referring physicians, their uh, customers in many senses of the word. So uh, I have a lot of meetings with hospital administration and specific hospital leaders and the on the health system level regionally. Outside of that, I, I do a lot of recruiting, making sure that our our team is in place. We have. Uh, committee structure um, under our executive committee. So there's finance and IT and clinical operations, quality. So uh, those meeting, those committees meet regularly, and I'm part of those meetings and facilitate those conversations. And then uh, we have a, a small office staff. I have a clinical operations person and a revenue cycle management person, and uh, we have a great IT team. So I interface with those people on a regular basis and. A lot of it's just putting out fires and uh, <laughs> some of it's whiteboard time uh, innovating and some of it's putting out fires. Um, but it's it's a new problem every day, which is honestly what I love about it. One of the sort of bifurcations or dichotomies of being a organizational leader are the activities that focus external to the group, such as the hospital relations and the referring physician relations, contracts, all those sorts of things. And then the things that are internal to the group, managing the group, retention, the recruitment, uh, finances, all those sorts of things. How would you say your efforts are divided between the external and internal focus? Yeah, we, we call it domestic policy and foreign policy and, <laughs> and TRA. Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty even, um, I'd say pretty close to 50, uh, 50. Obviously, any given day might be 80, 20 or 100, zero. It's a pretty, pretty even mix. You know, I think radiology in general has some battles ahead of it as far as culture of groups, um, where it's a lot of remote reading. There's a lot of people in different places. We don't see each other like we used to. We don't have the same camaraderie that's kind of inherent to the work that we do. So building that team culture, I think, is a lot more challenging than it used to be. So I try to spend some time figure out how to do that. I think your uh, any business runs better if the people feel like you know, they feel some ownership in it and engagement in it. And I think that is getting a little bit harder for radiology in general. There's also medicine between the pandemic and everything else that's been going on globally and a health system standpoint, there's all sorts of challenges that the hospitals are having. And if we can show that we're valuable to them, then we remain relevant. If we you know, don't make the effort to do that, then we're putting ourselves at, at risk, both from a contract standpoint and radiology as a profession. So equally important uh, and fairly even split in my, my time. What sorts of things are you doing to try to maintain that sense of cohesion and ownership perspective? Uh, so it's it's tough, and man, the pandemic really you know, made it difficult. We used to have social events pretty frequently that completely uh, got put to an end. We're trying to uh, bring some of those things back. We do a big summer party where all the families are invited, and we get to see people. And it's funny because now people will be like, oh, who, who are you? Oh, I've seen your name a thousand times, but I've never actually seen your face. It, the interview dinners even are times for us to get together and see each other and spend some time after work. 
it's, it's hard. I was just having this conversation yesterday. Radiology has changed and that our days are so busy and the shifts are so crazy that you're just exhausted when you're done. And we've shifted to so much after hour work, off hours, you're either getting up at five to start a shift or staying up till midnight to cover this crazy amount of volume that we have. So people are exhausted and even asking them to do social events sometimes is hard. So you you have to balance as a leader, what's good for the group to get everybody together and have a drink, or is it better to let people recover and rest and see their family? And there's there's some happy medium there uh, that we're we're trying to thread that needle for. Right at at New Year's, I sent out an an email and the email said, everybody just send a couple pictures of something that happened to you this year of your family or a great trip you did. It was amazing. I had so many people say, oh, such a great idea. I absolutely loved seeing everybody's pictures. So sometimes it's really simple things that can bring the group together. So it doesn't always take a big social event. You mentioned that uh, there's increasing pressures on uh, radiologists and that the shifts just are getting crazier and crazier. From your perspective, do you see the change resulting from the group just seeing more volume and setting standards itself that it's wanting to meet. uh, And that is resulting in earlier shifts and the later shifts, or do you feel that this is something that is coming externally expectations on the field uh, to meet demands within hospitals, for example? So I think it depends on your practice type. For the most part, the answer is externally. I think that the, the EDs are they're having the same problem. They're busy. They're overwhelmed. Those doctors don't have time to sit down for an hour and examine a patient to thoughtfully decide which you know, imaging study they want. It's just easier to get it all. And then you have answers. Um, so the hospitals are busy and understaffed uh, all around. Um, so they're ordering more. You know, we've got advanced practitioners ordering more studies than doctors that's been shown in studies. So the volume is increasing. The hospitals are increasingly competing on things that don't necessarily correlate with outcomes. So patient satisfaction scores, uh, metrics like you know, that give them a marketing advantage. So if the patients are complaining that they're waiting too long, the first thing they're going to do is tell the radiologist they need to read faster. And so you know, a lot of those pressures are coming down from, from the hospital, even outpatient centers. You know, their patients want their, everyone wants their results right away. So I think most of it is external. There is also, you know, the business side of it is that reimbursement's going down. So you're getting paid less for the same amount of work, getting paid less in some cases for more work. Um, so when you're running a business, it's, yeah, you know, it makes sense that you would try to squeeze more efficiency out of people to try to keep the bottom line the same. I haven't seen a lot of sweatshop type groups like that. I haven't even heard too many. Although, uh, you know, ultimately, if you just think about the world of economics, that's the that's the result of declining reimbursement. So I think the majority is pressure from the hospitals and the, the external sources. Do you feel that uh, your team, your partners are pretty understanding of those dynamics? And so when you come in and you say, you know, this is what we have to do now, uh, this is what I'm hearing, folks get it? Or is it uh, a challenge on a daily basis to help contextualize the world outside for your world inside? They get it, but I mean, they're tired. <laughs> Just like everybody, everybody, every group I talk to, you know, it's, it's stressful. Even five years ago, reading radiology, you'd have a little bit of downtime. You might be able to you know, leave your workstation for lunch. Crazy thought like that, or go to the bathroom. And uh, I feel like the shifts now, you just, there's, it's nonstop maximum focus attention for however many hours that you're stuck on the, on, on the work list. And it's fun and it's rewarding, but it's exhausting. So people do it. I, I'll tell you, that's, that's where it makes the difference when you've built that team culture. 
because when you feel like you have a purpose in what you're doing, it, make, it makes a huge difference. Our group has is, is been really great about that. Um, if you have somebody that, that calls in sick or has a problem with the family, people just immediately jump in to help out. Um, and that's because we've done the work, the hard work to build the, the team culture that we have. Yeah, I would be lying if I said that <laughs> everyone's excited about staying late or uh, picking up extra extra hours. That's certainly not the case. And the trajectory that we're on, what, what you've described, seems at some point unsustainable. And so, you know, what are your thoughts about introducing an inflection point that will help to return to a certain extent to a sense of uh, work-life balance, or at least even just balance during the course uh, of a radiology shift. I mean, we know that fatigue sets in and then, you know, the effectiveness uh, that we bring to the tasks that we have can sometimes uh, be hindered by that. And so, you know, what, what are you thinking at this moment in time is a potential remedy? I wish I had the answers to that. Part of it's a, a workflow, I mean, uh, sorry, manpower issue. You know, we, if we could just magically make thousands of extra radiologists, I think that would be a, a way to do it. I don't see that happening overnight. I think that we have had, you know, COVID prompted some early retirements, some people who wanted to scale back on their, on their work. So I don't know that we have a solution right away for the workforce. I do think there's some promise in AI tools and helping us with efficiency, that's a double-edged sword too, because the more uh, the more information that we have that we can glean from those types of AI tools, the more processing and, and judgment calls that have to be made off of that. So in some ways, it's not exactly a, a quick fix either. I, I think one thing is that expectations probably are going to have to uh, adjust some. Yeah, people are going to have to either work more or make less money. That's sort of how the, how the balance goes. So uh, some of that's expectations. Eventually, maybe CMS and the commercial payers will understand how valuable imaging is and stop cutting our payments. That that would be obviously the best answer to this problem. It always it baffles me that radiology gets targeted for increased utilization because people obviously value imaging. Patients value it. The referring physicians value it. If they didn't, they wouldn't order so much of it. Um, so to consider that a universal bad thing is bizarre to me. And certainly to cut the payments for it because you know, it's valued seems seems backwards to me. But if, you know, if it, I think what's prevented that from being an issue on anybody's radar is that there really isn't an access issue to radi- for, for radiology in the United States. We can make all the arguments we want to, to Medicare and other people that, oh, you're not going to have enough radiologists, so this can happen. But that's just not the case right now. If you want an MRI, you can get an MRI. You can get it tomorrow in most places. And if you compare that to the rest of the world, certainly we're an outlier in the United States. So we don't have a great argument for that. But if we were in a situation where there weren't enough radiologists and the turnaround times were weeks, then then maybe we'd see some change from a policy front as well. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side, you know, if you're a government payer and you're looking to reduce uh, the expense uh, of imaging because you see it as a source of expense, you can try to influence demand or you can try to influence supply. And if demand is just, you know, outsized, uh, you know, you can probably, you know, throw barriers up like prior authorization and these sorts of things. But on the supply side, lowering compensation may be a way that is viewed as uh, Mm -hmm. keeping control uh, on 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And there's no doubt that that's, you know, there, there are all these political underpinnings of policy decisions. And um, my guess is that that is certainly one that, that they've thought of. There's definitely been a very uh, transparent in some ways policy push from uh, away from specialty payments towards primary care payments. And you know, that's just another example of, of a way that I think that, that they want to try to do that. But if you look at the imaging expenditure, Total uh, imaging is high, but then you look at like office visits or E&M visits, you multiply that times how many there are. <laughs> it's it's such a different number. Um, but for some reason, that doesn't catch anyone's eye. Yeah. Well, let's let's come back to this uh, economic stuff in a little bit. I want to get yeah. back to triad. How much clinical work are you able to do as CEO? It sounds like you got a huge job administering the practice. Yeah, so um, my practice has been incredibly uh, uh, forward thinking by protecting time for the CEO to do CEO things. Whereas other practices, I think, divide executive skills into probably three or four people. It's basically just me. So I, I'm the face of TRA to the hospitals and the health systems and our clients. I will. I have a PACS in my office. And if, you know, if we're short a day, I'll, I'll do a rotation. But I don't have any necessarily scheduled shifts. I do pick them up probably three or four times a month. And then I'll just in between meetings, we'll jump on the list if I see that somebody's behind. But what that allows me to do is uh, my job isn't just making the meetings that happen to be scheduled. It's also planning and strategizing and thinking of how to keep this practice successful in the future. And you know, if you don't preserve that whiteboard kind of time, then that's a lot of what being a leader is. And so uh, I'm really grateful to our practice for, for maintaining that time for me. Absolutely. Now, transitioning from uh, a a professional world where you are on clinical service on a daily basis to one where it's really limited, as you describe. Um, w- w- was that difficult? Are you missing the clinical work? So I, I do. Uh, some days I miss it. Um, it's interesting because there, there's no shortage of challenges. They're just slightly different challenges. You know, in some ways, this job is harder from a time's perspective because you're never off. I mean, literally never off. The phone rings at 2 a.m. Something goes wrong. That's yeah, that's my job. 6 a.m. So it's my job. There's a little bit more flexibility day to day, but you're, you're never off. I'm okay with that. And you know, in some ways, even when I was doing 100% clinical, I did a lot of ACR stuff. We'd have calls at 9 p.m. at night. We do um, meetings all day long. So that's not a foreign concept to me. I've just really enjoyed the, the different types of challenges. And you know, some days, Sometimes I miss the ability to say, okay, I'm on the schedule at 7.30, I'm done at 5, and see see you guys later. (laughs) But uh, all in all, it's been great. So I'd like to explore a little bit about the nature of the practice uh, covering seven hospitals, 10 imaging centers, as best as I can tell, the majority of those being Navant facilities. Talk to us a little bit about your perspective strategically about having a dominant hospital partner, the role of the parts of the practice that are not affiliated with Novant, and the sort of stresses and strains that come about uh, that lead you to have the platform that you do? Yeah, so that is uh, kind of cuts to the core of our, our business model. So we do have a, probably about 70% of our business is uh, with Novant. They're obviously our largest customer referring providers. So that relationship is number one. That is, we put a lot of energy and effort into making sure that we're providing them the service they want, that we're being the best partners we can to them. I'm never a fan of putting too many eggs in one basket, but you can't have them in so many baskets that you can't do a good job for any one of them. Um, and especially, especially larger health systems, they like to see that loyalty. They want to know that you're focused on them and going to make sure that their, their needs are met. 
So for us, that split works pretty well. We're able to focus you know, a large amount of effort into to making sure that we're doing our best that we can for Navant facilities, but we're not 100% uh, involved in Navant. And uh, the other hospitals, there's two very rural hospitals that approached us for coverage that we have been servicing for a few years, um, outpatient imaging centers. And then uh, we recently got a, a, a large orthopedic contract for um, our MSK side of things um, that's outside of Navant. So uh, it's allowed us to diversify our uh, workforce. So we have some remote readers. We have a, a, we're able to make some hires when we took on that that contract. And, you know, it would certainly be absolutely awful if we lost the Navant contract, but we would have something to rebuild from. That's the de facto strategy and kind of the, the thought of how that how we manage that split. Does Navant employ any physicians and other specialties? They employ a lot of physicians. They do not employ radiologists. There are three radiology groups that uh, serve the area that Navant covers, one in Charlotte, uh, us, and then one on the east coast of North Carolina. So we work closely with them, but uh, they don't have any radiology groups. They do own other, other physician specialties. What sorts of touch points do you have with those other radiology groups? And, uh, I mean, do you sort of try to have some equilibrium that you all share to avoid any competition. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're good friends. We play well together. They're great guys. And in, in many ways, our practices are a lot alike. Um, there's some, some cultural differences and governance differences, but we're a lot more alike than we are different. And we certainly agree that patient centered focus and things like that. So we will meet uh, quarterly, sometimes more if there's uh, big issues rising. Um, often we will decide what our kind radiology focused strategy is before we take something big to the hospital or if there's some new initiative that the hospital is doing we'll kind of gather it to ourselves and decide what we want our united front to be so uh, we've worked really well together and managed to avoid any kind of any, any toxic competition or anything like that are all three practices independent practices about the same size as triad yes triad is a member of strategic radiology Van Moore spoke about the founding of strategic radiology when he was a guest on episode seven back in 2019, but we haven't had any members as guests since then. Catch us up on strategic radiology and why Triad is a part of it. Um, So strategic radiology is an alliance of like-minded independent private practice groups. The idea behind it is to kind of give us a platform to share best practices, share ideas, to advocate for uh, independent practice groups. There are some benefits to joining. We can do some group purchasing type of agreements. They're working on a health insurance captive across all the groups to try to save some money there. Same thing with with malpractice and some cyber insurance. You can, if you you own your own equipment, there are certain discounts and things you can get from being a strategic radiology member. So there are some benefits monetarily. I think the biggest draw though is just the conceptual support of the uh, independent private practice as an as an entity, and certainly it gets a challenging environment sometimes for for those types of practices. So having people you can bounce ideas off, an entity that's representing your needs, it's, it's been nice. How how long going back? How far have you been connected with Strategic? Oh, I want to say three or four years that TRA joined uh, right before COVID. I, I know that over time, there's been uh, ebbs and flows of practices in and out of strategic. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, one of the dominant forces in the radiology 
marketplace is the engagement of third party equity uh, mm-hmm. and some practices you know are, are purchased and or mm-hmm. sold you know to, to what extent you know are you seeing that as a factor from the strategic radiology perspective are, do you, do you essentially lose practices to third party equity uh, and and how do you gain new practices yeah, there've been a couple practices that were, were sold to private equity. And by definition, that means they can't be a part of the uh, strategic radiology anymore. So that, that we've seen that the opposite is true. Sometimes groups that are afraid of private equity purchasing them will come to strategic radiology to um, capitalize on some of those alliances and uh, leverage that position with other groups. So we've, we've kind of seen it both ways. Certainly corporization, private practice, ownership of radiology has been a hot topic uh, across the country. And I don't really see that changing anytime soon, but um, it has been both both a motivator and, I guess, in some ways, a detractor from strategic, depending on the group ownership structure. But it sounds like strategic is going strong still now. Yeah, they've added a couple of new groups this year and uh, they're doing well. That's great. Now, since 2021, you're serving as the chief medical officer of Strategic Radiology's Patient Safety Organization. Tell us about that role and your work leading the PSO. So I have to give most of the credit to this to uh, Lisa Mead, who she's she's a nurse by training, but is a, a complete expert, smartest person I know in the world of quality. She's the uh, staff lead for that. Um, so I provide overall guidance. She does all of the nuts and bolts work. So I, I don't want to talk about this like <laughs> like she uh, she does. I don't get I get all the credit. But uh, yeah, the, the idea behind that is that we have all these groups and all this data and potential to benchmark in ways that we can improve patient care. So yeah, I can tell you what TRA does, Charlotte can tell you what MRA does, Texas can tell you what Texas does. But uh, if you compile all that, then you, you have ability to um, really expand your opportunities to improve in various quality measures. And, and not just ones for MIPS, but ones that we actually think make a difference in patient care. We've been working on a peer learning program so that we can share cases and would like to get some CME credit for that, but a platform where and I can submit an interesting case that I saw today. Ideally, you could pull it up on your smartphone while you're waiting in line at the grocery store. You can review the case, read a little bit about it. Just this continuous learning that's accessible to you through um, through the other groups and through the, the platform that we're working on creating. So I think there's some opportunities there to improve quality from a, the hospital standpoint. You know, if I, I can go to my hospital's quality leader and hand them this print out of all these things that we're doing to improve ourselves, they're much less likely to tell me how, <laughs> how to manage my my quality and give me metrics that they want, which are probably just going to be turnaround time. Um, so being proactive by, uh, in that way, I think, uh, protects you from you know, having artificial measures imposed on you from the hospital. What sort of uh, strategic quality measures do you highlight uh, that you think are particularly insightful that the hospitals are resonating with? Uh, well, we, we haven't gotten that far yet. We're still in the process of, of putting those together. But um, things like uh, you know, using evidence-based recommendations, reports on the interventional side of things, you know, catheter-based infections, procedure-related things like that. So um, we haven't finalized our list, so I don't want to give too much away here. But, but we're working on several measures that we think would be useful to the various member practices. And is it a goal then that all practices would provide data so that they can benchmark against one another. Yeah, that would be yeah, the goal. We obviously don't force anybody to share data that doesn't want to, but um, ideally contribute all the data and then you have a much bigger pool to compare and you can make regional comparisons or national comparisons and see where your practice is. 
tweak some things, look again, uh, compare again, do a PDSA type cycle to try to do continuous quality improvement. So that's the end goal. Yeah, no, it's a laudable goal. I think it's intriguing when you consider that, um, you know, all of these practices, as you mentioned, are independent and probably using different uh, PACs, different RISs, different EHRs, and so harmonizing data in a manner that allows it all to come in and get aggregated centrally. Have you begun to explore the uh, ability for that? Yeah, we've, we've, we've started. Um, we have a partner, um, Quinsight is the company's name. They do a lot of the data analytics for us. So they've worked on a lot of that. So we're getting, we're getting pretty close to being able to process the data and present it in a way that's useful information. Uh, we also support the ACR uh, Qualified Clinical Data Registry, the QCDR. So there's a lot of valuable measures in that as well. So strategic supports member practices, uh, submitting to those measures and collecting them. Excellent. Now, I see that you're also serving as the chair of the radiology department of Forsyth Medical Center, which is operated by Navon Health. What uh, are your responsibilities within that role? A lot of that overlaps with my responsibilities as CEO. That's a de facto position that's tied to the CEO position at Triad. I'm a member of the medical executive committee, so I attend those meetings, take part in credentialing meetings. In some ways, I get to participate in the strategy of the hospital as a whole, which is really interesting from a radiology standpoint because we often yeah, we see our little silo. Sometimes we see the hospital as the enemy, <laughs> when, depending on how they're treating us. That role allows me to really um, feel like radiology is part of the team. More importantly, it, see, it helps them to see radiology as part of the team. So uh, as the hospital thinks about growth opportunities and how to expand, my role is to educate them on how imaging can be a part of that. And how, how much time do you spend and how deeply do you get involved in um, the operations of the radiology department there, namely, you know, around the acquisition, scheduling of patients, all of the nuts and bolts of delivering radiology services? So I interface frequently with the, um, the department leader, the radiology department leader at that hospital and, and our other hospitals. But as far as the nuts and bolts of the actual scheduling and the patient, I don't do a lot of that on a day-to-day basis, but I do get overviews and reports on how things are going, get all these dashboards of how long it took to get the patient on the table on average in the ER and all the, all these uh, metrics for usually related to the patient turnover. But uh, once a month I meet with the radiology director and then once a quarter I meet with the um, all of the uh, modality heads in the radiology department just to touch base and see what you know, we can do and make sure that their communication channels are preserved between the radiologists. Great. Now, in spite of all the responsibilities that you carry related to your practice, you're also very engaged with the American College of Radiology. How did you initially become involved in committee work with the ACR? Well, going back to 2015, when I first joined Triad, MACR had just dropped and I was interested and I had read the whole regulation. It's like 3,000 pages and called uh, my now husband um, or I wrote an email to him or the staff or someone and they set up a call and uh, I was asking questions and the people on the call said, it sounds like you know a lot about this. It, you know, almost sounds like you've actually read the regulation. I was like, yes, of course I read the regulation. <laughs> Isn't that what normal people do? <laughs> Turns out that's not what normal people do. So uh, on that call where I was just asking questions to help my practice, they put me on the committee as a member. And then um, that was my first foray into it. And then after a couple of years, the committee needed a chair and, there it was. 
So yeah, I actually that's it's, uh, want to make the point that that's advice that we give when we have new volunteers for the ACR and they want to know like, well, what can I read or can you teach me about this or that? The best volunteers we've ever gotten are people that have practical experience in their own practice where they've tried to implement things or they're you know, have have a hands-on view of how the policy actually actually impacts the members themselves rather than starting from scratch and trying to you know, read something in a book or have somebody teach you something. Yeah. And, and so just, I just want to emphasize, so you read 3000 pages of legislation. How long did that take you? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, it's like, you can't put it down. It's like the best novel you've ever had. So you know, a couple of days, I, I don't know, it was probably three or four days. What, what, what strategies do you employ when you're reading 3000 pages of material like that to kind of distill it down into something that you can then use yeah. as a reference point? I mean, is it all in your head or are you creating some kind of a record? So the the 3000 is a little grandiose because that, that's the entire physician fee schedule rule. A lot of that's parts that aren't directly related to radiology. So you have to kind of skim for the important parts. And then, uh, yeah, I've, I've developed a system now back when I first started, I didn't really had to kind of read through all of it. Now I can save it to my computer and I can use control F to look for the, the words that I know that are going to be relevant. And then I'll read those sections. So I have streamlined the process now, but in, in the beginning, you just had to kind of slog through it all and get through it the best you could. But I'll take notes sometimes or put little post-its here and there. Cool. Real cool. That's great. So take us through your current activities with the college and, and how they've developed over time. So I am the uh, RUC advisor. So the um, AMA has a group of people called the RVU Update Committee. That group is charged with making recommendations to CMS on what the RVU values should be for all of healthcare services. So each specialty has representatives that do that. So for the ACR, um, the advisor, I've got other uh, people on my team that help me. Um, anytime there's a new CPT code for radiology or one of our codes gets caught by various screens, uh, we have to go through, go in front of the rock um, and make presentations. It's sometimes quite contentious on why we should be paid you know, fairly for our services. So that is a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. The rock meets three times a year, but there is a never ending slew of, of emails and documents and forms and surveys and various things to do, strategy to develop. I'm still the chair of the macro committee. I think macro was all the rage for a few years. It's becoming painful, but people have gotten used to it. So there's a, it's not quite as hot of a topic as it used to be. But we still provide resources to the members on how best to optimize their score. And especially now, there's not a lot of quality measures out there. So we have members who are asking, what are the best strategies to try to get a decent score? I'm also the chair of the Ultrasound Commission, which earns a seat on the board of the Chancellor. So we have ACR board meetings, which has been just a phenomenal experience, getting to see how a board runs and participate in those discussions, leading the leading the college in that way. And then yeah, I have various other committee positions and get to hang out with cool people and talk about cool topics all the time. Sounds like fun. and sounds like you really enjoy it. Yeah, I do. I don't have regular people hobbies. I don't <laughs> So let's explore the work of a couple of these activities here. I wonder if we might start with the Committee of Reimbursement for which you chair. What are some of the leading issues that your committee is addressing with respect to reimbursement? So the, the Reimbursement Committee's big job is the RUC. So um, we deal with what, whatever's coming the way and the, as far as which codes are coming up. A couple of the big issues, obviously, we, we just handled the big issue outside of radiology of the evaluation management codes being revalued. So Medicare decided to pay doctors who do office visits more for those office visits. Well, I think that has nothing to do with radiology. 
because there's a budget neutral pot of money uh, to divide amongst all the physicians, if you pay some of them a lot more for something they're doing, by default, you're going to pay the rest of them less. So radiology took a pretty big hit when that happened. We were, of course, very involved and collaborated with our government relations team, trying to do our best to mitigate that um, hit. In some ways, we were successful. We've at least managed to slow it down, reduce the impact year over year for radiology. Outside of that, there's been some, um, we've had some codes that are uh, up for bundling, which is usually not a good thing <laughs> for radiology or for, for any healthcare service. Typically, when codes get bundled, it means that they've met a threshold, 75%, that they're done together most of the time. And uh, the thought is that if they're done together most of the time, then there's some economy of resources that we shouldn't pay you double, you know, one plus one, it should be some lesser value. So um, yeah, there's a, a couple of big code sets that are potentially up for bundling. And then uh, otherwise, on the reimbursement committee, the other big thing that we've been dealing with, I won't go into the nuances because it's boring and complex, but on the practice expense side of things, so how much radiology gets paid for the technical uh, component of providing services, that's being reevaluated by CMS. A lot of the numbers and formulas that they've used are about 20 years old. So they're trying to redo those the first time around, radiology did not do well. There was a survey sent out to a lot of radiology practices. It ended up going to a lot of uh, hospital-based facilities who put zeros for a lot of things for their costs. And instead of just throwing those out, they <laughs> put those numbers right in. So we'd like to think this is an opportunity for us to recover some of that, but it's not common in health policy where you actually get more out of something. So we're really just trying to make sure that we don't lose in that. So we're trying to work on member education for when those surveys come out and uh, make sure that we're reimbursed fairly for the services that we provide. So that, that was CMS. The big topics. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a lot. That was CMS that released those surveys? Or well, the surveys they... aren't out yet, but they, they, they orig- the survey, original survey was by CMS. They're going to do another survey type process to assess those costs. So they're in the development process to figure out how they're, who they're going to send it to, what types of questions they're going to ask. Um, and it won't be just for radiology, it's for all of medicine. So we've worked uh, closely with RBMA to try to get practice leaders educated on um, what these questions are actually a- asking, how to best answer them. I, I guess one silver lining that I'm gleaning is, is that, you know, whenever dealing with a big entity, particularly a government entity, transparency can be really challenging. And it sounds like at least you had access to some of the raw data that allowed you to see that there were zeros in there. Yeah, I mean, one thing that the ACR has done really well over the years is is built a reputation of of credibility and reliability so that the relationship that the ACR has with both AMA and CMS is is really strong. So we have the ability to ask questions that maybe other specialty studies wouldn't be able to ask. We have connections, we have those relationships, and that's a testament to how uh, dedicated the volunteers in the economics department have been over many, many years. One of the interesting trends that um, I've observed in our own practice, uh, particularly in certain areas of radiology, such as IR and nuclear medicine, is uh, that we are diversifying the codes that we are billing with more E&M activity and surgical codes. And I'm just wondering, you know, is this something that you're seeing at a national level? And do you see you know, radiology essentially, you know, being more active around E&M activity 
uh, as partly a remedy to the to increase reimbursement around radiology codes. Yeah, that's a that, that's a great question. That's probably the number one question that we were asked. Right as these you know, AM codes were being revalued, everybody's first thought was, "Okay, well, how can radiology do more of this? We talk to patients, we see patients, we manage problems in many ways. How can we build these codes that have been revalued?" Unfortunately, the answer in most of the scenarios presented is that we can't, both from regulatory reasons and encoding reasons. Um, the way most of our diagnostic radiology codes are written, there's pre-service work, inter-service work, and post-service work. And that post-service work includes, we're already paid for, communicating the findings with the referring physician and the patient as needed. So things like, oh, I called the patient and discussed their results. Can I bill an E&M? Even tumor board, things like that um, are not separately reimbursable as an E&M. There's some nuances to that. Um, if it wasn't wasn't your 10 that read the first report and you're uh, making treatment decisions based on what you're doing, you can kind of wiggle your way into it. But as far as you know, large-scale radiology uh, ability to build those E&M codes based on consultation work, it does not, <laughs> it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to do that. Um, certainly IR groups can, can do that. IR physicians can do that. Nuclear medicine, if they're doing treatments, molecular imaging therapies and things like that, they can build ENMs under the current guidelines. But diagnostic radiology, it's, it's more of an uphill battle. It's interesting. You mentioned about tumor boards and, you know, multidisciplinary conferences and hospitals are um, really an important aspect of mm-hmm. uh, patient care. And for radiology practice, they can be a major commitment. Are there efforts being taken to try to find ways that the practices can derive revenue from those activities? Uh, everyone's looking always to make more money, um, and the hospitals probably are too. But you have to do it within the, the coding guidance, and uh, at least for the way tumor boards are structured now, there's not a lot of opportunity to bill separately for that. You could always come up with some kind of you know, cash pay, you know, have the patient pay extra. Um, they would probably have a copay anyway. That's the other challenging part to some of this is that you have to have patient consent before you would bill them for something. So for a radiologist just to say, oh, you know, I'm going to discuss this with my pulmonology partner and send the patient a bill. Well, that's illegal because you'd have to ask the patient if you could you know, do that for them and send the bill first. So that there's several challenges. I still think it's best patient care. I think ultimately when we get to a value-based care type of arrangement, it won't matter anymore. Um, if the tumor boards end up providing better quality care at a lower cost, then institutions will do them, whether or not they're separately reimbursed. But I think that's a bit down the road. Are you confident that we're ultimately headed toward greater value-based? Uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, it depends on what you mean by ultimate. It's a <laughs> infinitely long time we have here. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be slow for radiology. I think that it will. it's going to happen in fits and starts for, for the rest of medicine. There's just so many challenges to how radiology fits into a lot of these value-based paradigms. I think we'll stay largely fee-for-service for a while. I also think that's regionally dependent. Um, we're seeing across the country, some places really accelerated rapidly in risk-based contracting and bundle payments, even capitation in some areas. In some places, it's barely barely even a thing. So uh, it's variable. The concern, of course, is that 
one day they'll flip a switch and everybody's going to have to be ready immediately. And uh, people that haven't thought about this might be left behind, but I I don't anticipate that happening. I think it's going to be a a gradual movement for radiology. Within the context of uh, bundled payments and, you know, probably the, you know, biggest example are DRG payments for inpatient uh, stays. And, you know, to the extent that radiology contributes, you know, so much to the care of inpatients, um, sometimes DRGs, you know, just kind of get reference to the admitting service. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, is this a part of the conversation that you participate in or you think about in terms of how does radiology um, maintain its identity uh, within the context, you know, of bundles of activity where the default for a hospital might be to just assign value to whoever is the primary service around that bundle? Yeah, I think there's two two ways to go with that question. I, I actually was just on a call yesterday uh, with our hospital about the inpatient DRGs and the fact that a lot of imaging is done unnecessarily as an inpatient when it could wait till as an outpatient. As a hospital, when you're looking at your bottom line, you're getting this lump sum DRG payment. You don't necessarily want to be working up, you know, out shoulder pain and somebody that you could get paid for that if they were discharged and, and then got the exam. So we were discussing brainstorming ways that you know, radiology could help with that, whether we have to screen the requests for certain MRs or PET scans or things like that. So I think that that's one way to keep us relevant is that we make sure that we're at those meetings and that we are there brainstorming and offering our services. I'm on the call saying, well, you know, you could call the radiologist and ask if that's an appropriate indication. And then in the back of my head, I'm like, my partners are going to kill me. They don't want, they don't want these calls about every inpatient MRI on whether or not it's, it's uh going to be appropriate. And, and some of them might just say yes without even thinking about it. So, uh, you know, we, uh, another thing to balance, but we, we do have to make sure that we are seen as part of the team. It's far too easy, I think, to commoditize imaging. It takes a concerted effort for us to be there part of the product solution, not the problem. Excellent point. Well, one last ACR related question. Uh, as chair of the commission on ultrasound, what are the top issues before that commission? One thing that we've been working closely on is uh, the um, implementation of POCUS, point of care ultrasound programs across the country. And yeah, in, in some ways it's uh, that horse is out of the barn because a lot of places have them. Um, what we're finding is that sometimes the radiologists weren't even asked or consulted or you know, brought into the picture at all um, before institutions either gave their ER focus abilities or their primary care doctors. So yeah, what we've tried to do is develop some resources for our members to be at the table for those conversations, or if they've been approached to lead focus programs or develop them, what are some some resources and tools that we could give them to be able to be leaders in that way? So um, that's one big thing that we've been working on. Now, the other thing this year that we've, we've started is we're trying to make a standardized lexicon for um, first trimester ultrasound for OB ultrasound. We have Virads, Lyrads, a lot of lot of standardized uh, lexicons in radiology that I think are really useful. So the more we can use standardized language and things like that, I think the better. That's great. POCUS, of course, representing point of care ultrasound uh, and the proliferation of handheld technology mm-hmm. kind of uh, being the door opener to this. I'm curious to the extent the commission has sought to study the impact of the prevalence of POCUS activity in a hospital on ultrasound referrals to radiology. Yeah, so those studies have been done. Um, most of them show that there's more downstream imaging when POCUS is used. There's a couple that don't, but um, most of the literature supports that uh, it leads to an increased downstream utilization, which, you know, it's, I guess if you're a fee-for-service, that's great for your radiology department, whether it's good for healthcare as a whole, I'm not so sure. But uh, it, I think it underscores the role of the radiologist and uh, ensuring quality and training, what are the 
credentialing uh, requirements necessary? What constitutes a good POCUS exam? What should they be looking at? I mean, a lot of times that downstream imaging was because they were scanning the gallbladder, but they thought they saw something else in the abdomen. I mean, is that outside the scope of POCUS? Our commission and the ACR in general has uh, been a big proponent of the idea of POCUS like a stethoscope. It's really an adjunct to the physical exam. So in that way, it's different than a diagnostic imaging study. We're looking for very different things. They have a clinical picture in their mind, and they're using that to help them with the physical exam. So I think that uh, helps us kind of separate the goals of POCUS versus complete diagnostic ultrasound. Over the past few years, you've been a prolific contributor to the literature, contributing uh, and leading publications focused on quality measures and value-based radiology, economics, payment models for AI, and pressures on Medicare reimbursement for radiology. I'd like to explore just a little bit uh, of some of what you focused on. And firstly, uh, I want to ask you about AI. Although there are isolated examples of CMS reimbursement for AI through at least a couple of payment mechanisms that are either temporary or poorly compensated for the full cost of AI, radiologist-funded AI may make economic sense uh, within the context of value-based care. When considering the rapidly expanding landscape of AI applications across the radiology value chain, what do you foresee is the most likely model for supporting the sustained expense of AI adoption? I think that's the million-dollar question. Who's going to pay for AI? There was extremely slow uptake of any kind of reimbursement um, for AI for, for many years. We had one or maybe two CPT codes. There's a lot of challenges with getting AI reimbursed through the CPT system. Well, in the last year or two, we've seen a handful of them kind of accelerated progress of being reimbursed through the hops. Um, through the new technology uh, APC payment system, which I won't go into the details of, but um, CMS has put some kind of exorbitant payments on some of these AI tools, which is interesting. It makes me think that they might be starting to see some of the value of these tools. What that means, and like you said, those are temporary payments. What that means in the, in the scheme of things is still remains to be seen. What I think probably is the most likely uh, end result is that at some point, ultimately, most of these tools are going to be um, assimilated into the, the, the scanners or the packs. Right now, we have hundreds of different products that are all individual vendors. There are some platform uh, companies, companies, vendors that are doing platforms that have multiple AI uh, tools available on that one platform. But otherwise, it's just a bunch of siloed tools. And that's not an efficient way for us to read. It's not an efficient way for those businesses to, to conduct their businesses. The integration is inefficient. So I think we'll see um, more and more uh, kind of mergers of, of those types of companies and consolidation. And eventually, when you buy your packs, it will have this set of AI tools or you buy the new G scanner. It's got this set of AI tools. I don't know how long that process is going to take, but I think that's what we'll, we'll end up getting. And then those costs are just bundled into the cost of the, the equipment. Great. You've written about the consolidation of radiology practices and the rise of large national radiology corporations funded by third-party equity. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you forecast will be the structure of radiology practices in the future and the organizational economics that will sustain quality and innovation in radiology? I'm a little biased here, um, but I have to believe that um, physician-led, radiologist-led groups are tend to provide the best working environment, which is important, the place where people want to come to work and do their jobs, the happiest radiologist, and the best for patient care. Our 
doctors are altruistic to a fault sometimes, um, but our incentives are to take care of the patient. I'm running a business, but at the end of the day, I'm going to do the right thing for the patient a hundred times out of a hundred. So I think that that model is not going away. I think there's some economic challenges with it. I think as the reimbursement shifts up and down, there'll be some, some difficulties. I think there probably is not going to be a a continued large number of, of really small practices, one or two radiologists. I think that model is probably not going to last Medium size and larger size radiology groups, I think, will end up being okay. In Australia and New Zealand, there was a massive corporate uh, takeover. Pretty much all the radiologists were uh, belonged to some corporate entity. And then you know, a few years went by, and it started to, the tide started to shift, and the independent private practices started to come back. So I don't really know. We'll probably end up with some uh, mix. I think generationally, generationally, there's some differences in how people want to work. Uh, there seems to be. Now, for good reason, people that really value work-life balance, and they don't necessarily want to be um, on the hook for practice building and uh, have those responsibilities tied to a business. They like to be done with their work when they're done with their work. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. That's there's it's absolutely laudable for many reasons. But you know, I think that the existence of that group of people will um, mean that there's always going to be employed radiology groups. Hospitals will own radiology groups. Um, so I think there'll be a mix. I don't think that anybody's going away completely. As I said at the beginning, I really think that there will be a preponderance of uh, independent radiology groups that are here to stay. We've talked about how fee-for-service tied to RVUs uh, remains the dominant basis for radiologist payment. And conversion factor reductions are lowering the value of those RVUs. How do you see radiology practices supporting important uncompensated consultation and quality improvement activities while avoiding a reduction in their compensation? And, you know, not only looking at this from sort of a kind of holistic perspective, but as you look at your own practice, you know, and make decisions about how people allocate their time. Yeah, that's tough. And in in some ways, the answer is you you can't. I mean, you can increase your efficiency to some degree, but you have to, from the outset, decide what your priorities are. And I think that you you can't give up on those quality improvement things. You can't give up on important things your practice does outside of clinical, like the consultations and taking time to make sure that you're better and that you give the people in your practice that do those leadership things and those administrative things time to do that. So from a business standpoint, the best way is to increase the efficiency and find ways to maximize the efficiency of your radiologist, whether that's in a better IT platform that you know, doesn't freeze up every two seconds or dictation system that maximizes efficiency. There's a million different tools that might work for one practice, but you know, better than another. But you have to be willing to think outside of the box in ways that are going to give people the you know, uh, ability to do their job better. I found in our group that for a while we were doing this thing called Code 530, where if the lists were certain length, we would uh, send out a text to everybody to all the partners still stay till 5.30 to try to catch it up. And you can imagine how much extra incremental work people do from 5 to 5.30 when they're already exhausted. And then they get angry because that that page just makes them mad. They don't want to stay late. So we just got rid of it. We're like, look, this isn't helping. It's bad for morale. The list actually, people did more work in the the shorter amount of time period than they did in the longer amount of time period. So sometimes the answer to efficiency isn't intuitive. Um, You have to think about people's um, how much energy and effort they have available to put into their job. So people that enjoy their job and feel uh, feel purpose in it are going to work harder than, than those that don't. So those are worthy things of investment. At the risk of inducing vertigo in our listeners, I would be remiss if I didn't discuss your startup activities. Uh, let's start with your role as Chief Medical Officer of Reveal DX. 
what does Reveal DX do and what are your responsibilities as CMO? Yeah, so um, in the AI world, there's a lot of different uh, types of products. A lot of the early tools we saw were detection, yeah, triage type algorithms. Those are helpful to a point. Um, where I th- really think AI has a potential to change how we do medicine is in these quantitative type tools. So things that are, I can't see with my eyes on a CT scan um, that's going to help patient care. And so Reveal is one of those. Um, that's a software algorithm that will look at a lung nodule and can predict malignancy based on a huge database of lung nodules and the, the NLST. And so you, you click on it, you get a, a malignancy severity index from zero to one that shows the probability of that being uh, malignant. And it's pretty remarkable. The data that we have shows that ones that would have been have a low lung rad score or low Flashner score may actually turn out to be malignant. So using the, that tool as a tool in combination with all the other clinical factors, we may really be able to, one, find cancer early. But what I'm really excited about is what about all these lung nodules that we follow that we don't need to? Um, you save patient anxiety, you save cost, you save all these potential biopsies. If you could make that change based on all these lung cancer CTs and incidental lung nodule CTs that we read, then you've really changed things for healthcare for the better. So uh, I'm excited about technology, that technology, a technology like that. So uh, my role for the company is I you know, provide uh, guidance from both the reimbursement aspect and the clinical aspect on radiology workflow and how the tool could best be used. I mean, you've, you've described your training as a pediatric radiologist and a breast imager, and you've obviously got a lot of practice leadership experience and reimbursement experience. And now we're talking about lung cancer screening. How did your engagement with the company come about? Um, kind of a connection of a connection. Um, my practice also, so we try to have a, a, at least a small percentage of our practice devoted to innovation and new things, to, thinking outside of the box types of things. Obviously, 95% of it has to be getting the work done for the day, uh, keeping your head above water. But we do try to reserve some time for, for innovation. And as part of that, we partnered with a company called Serona, which is developing a cloud-based PAX type platform. The people at Serona had worked with the CEO of Reveal. Um, so I met them through that and was really intrigued by the product and excited by it. So. That's terrific. Good, good luck with that. Um, ManyMaps is a startup where you serve on the board of directors. Can you tell us a bit about that company and how you engage as a radiologist member of a corporate board? Mm-hmm. So uh, ManyMaps is a company that's developed a technology to assess um, bone density in a, in a way that's uh, complementary to and in some ways superior to DEXA, can predict fracture risk uh, in a sophisticated way. Um, I am a non-voting member of the board, so I sit on the board kind of in an advisory role Somewhat the same way Rose Reveal, I help them with clinical guidance and uh, reimbursement and health policy guidance as well. Uh, I'm sure you bring tremendous value. That's why you're there. So it's fantastic and very exciting. Let's talk about your family life just for a few minutes. Uh, Tell us about your family. Um, I am married to my husband is Greg Nicola. He's a radiologist as well. He's well known to the ACR. He's the chair of the Economics Commission. Smartest man I know. Uh, We constantly learn from each other, which is awesome. Just best friend all together, which is amazing. We have five daughters between the two of us, twin 11-year-olds, an eight-year-olds, another 11-year-old, and a 14-year-old. So our uh, house is complete chaos, but it's a lot of fun. Wow. So twins, uh, tw- you're, you're a twin. <laughs> That's just uh, yeah. what, what a cool opportunity to be able to speak to your twins about the mm-hmm. experience of being a twin. Yeah, it is. It's uh, so I have twin stepdaughters now, and um, 
it's it's funny because my husband Greg had, was one of three when he was little, and he, they apparently fought and were typical sibling rivalry. I have three daughters of my own that fought all the time, and then I uh, have these twin stepdaughters that are more or less angels, and they do everything you tell them to do, and they're very well behaved. And I was like, these were the kids that I was when I grew up. Now, <laughs> and then he looks at my daughters and says, these are the daughters that I grew up with. So we have that kind of parallel parenting experience, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah, but the twin the twin connection. There's there's nothing like it. So. Excellent. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, raising five kids, five daughters, and their ages are fairly close together. It must just be a lot of activity at your house, and particularly, you know, with, you know, weekend activities and such. I mean, how do you guys balance all that? Oh, we, uh, we just make it work. There are always activities. We sometimes divide and conquer, try to stay together as much as we can. We do some, in some ways, limit the kids' activities. We don't want them, you know, I think family time is really important. So we have a couple soccer players and do some stuff, but we really try to preserve the ability to have some downtime together as a family when we, as much as we can. Do you try to eat meals together? We do. We try to do uh, meals together. It's not always possible given work schedules and school schedules, but um, we do try to do meals together and on the weekends, especially we try to make sure that we have that family dinner. Yeah. It's a big job raising five kids and uh, (laughs) my hat's off to you. Amongst all of that, it's also about taking care of yourself. Uh, What do you do to recharge with so many responsibilities? I I read 3000 pages of policy. (laughs) We've been through this. That's (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I, um, I, I love to travel. Um, Greg and I have had the opportunity to take some really awesome trips. Um, I love hiking, uh, anything I can do outside. We recently picked up tennis. I was a big tennis player growing up. For some reason, I just thought it was, wasn't important to do after college, so I didn't do it for many, many years. And uh, recently, probably about two years ago, I picked a racket up again. So we play whenever we get a chance. So that's that's about it. I'm curious, you know, uh, for a young radiologist who's in training and they look to you uh, as a role model, what would be your advice to them in being able to have the kind of influence that you have uh, in the practice of radiology? I think, yeah, the best advice I could give is, yeah, one, be a good listener. It's so important to listen, whether it's your family, your coworkers, and your other people on your board, whatever it is, you got to learn how to listen. The converse to that is learning how to speak. One of the biggest skills I try to tell my kids that they absolutely have to have is public speaking. Um, People underestimate that. And a lot of really smart people don't do a great job at it. It takes practice um, and it it takes some work. But people that know how to communicate in a way that they can get complex ideas across in a simple way, they can be engaging and inspiring. Those are the ones that really uh, have the ability to make a difference with leadership. And then uh, the last thing would just know the value of your team. Nobody is uh, capable of doing much by themselves. There's a quote I really like. I'm not going to say it exactly right, but it's something about uh, imagine how much you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And uh, I think that's it's it's so key. If you're you know, trying so hard to make sure that your name's out there, that you know, someone understands it's your good idea, um, you're going to really limit how much you can accomplish. But if you look at it as the, the team as a whole um, and how can you make the right decisions and, and move the whole team forward, then you're going to be able to accomplish a lot. So those are my, my bits of advice. Good pearls of wisdom. Very nice. Well, Dr. 
Lauren, Nicola, you are uh, inspiring and valuable, and uh, the experiences that you've shared with us today and uh, all that you are doing for the field of radiology is, uh, is really exciting to hear. And I want to thank you so much for taking some of your valuable time to spend with us on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Join me next month when I speak with Dr. James Brink, radiologist-in-chief at the Massachusetts General Hospital, chair of radiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, chief of enterprise radiology at the Mass General Brigham Health System, and the Juan M. Tavares Professor of Radiology at Harvard Medical School. After seven years as a faculty member at the Mallinckrodt Institute of Radiology of Washington University School of Medicine, he joined the faculty of Yale University, serving for 16 years and as chair of the Department of Radiology for seven of those years. In 2013, he returned to his residency and fellowship alma mater as radiologist-in-chief of the Massachusetts General Hospital. As past president of the American College of Radiology, the American Rentkin Ray Society, current president of the International Society for Strategic Studies in Radiology, and honorary member of the European, Japanese, Chinese, and Italian Societies of Radiology, the American Association of Physicists in Medicine, and the International Organization of Medical Physics, Dr. Brink has been an influential voice in the national and international radiologic communities for many years. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.